You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Well, I have been uh, chopping at the bits to get to this Sunday morning where we are starting a new set of sermons in the book of James. And anytime we start a new set of sermons in a book, I always just love to take a step back and, and try to answer a little bit of the why. Why this particular book of the Bible? And let me give you two reasons for the book of James. Uh, why James? Here, here's one reason. James is a well-known and a beloved book of the Bible. People love the book of James. One commentator said it this way, few books of the New Testament are better known or more often quoted than James. It, it is just one of those books that people easily gravitate to and, and, and grab thoughts from. He goes on to say, it's probably one of the two or three most popular New Testament books in the church. And I found that to be true. If you ask people for their favorite books of the Bible, typically you're going to hear James on that, that sort of list of favorite books. And, and just a quick reading of the book gives you a, a sense of why that is. James is, is a pastoral book. It's very pastoral in, in its writing. It's a punchy book. It's, it's pithy. It's, it's got all of these vibrant sort of images and metaphors just sort of baked into these five chapters of this letter. Uh, it was funny. Jimmy and I were talking uh, after we listened to Trip Lee preach last week. And if you were here, you, you got to hear uh, Trip last week. And uh, one of the, I think, the unique sort of strengths that Trip has in his preaching is he is a master illustrator. I'm like, God, I, I would like to be that good at illustrating things. I mean, he is, he is so good at that. His mind just naturally works with metaphors and pictures to help bring a particular truth of the Bible uh, to light. James is very similar to that. James is a master illustrator. This is one of the reasons people really love the book of James. So if you just read the book of James, here are the sort of, of metaphors and images and pictures you're going to see. There are blazing forests. This is just a few of them. Uh, blazing forest. There are bits in the mouth of horses. There are resilient farmers. There's the sun rising and the flowers falling. There are mirrors and mist. There are big ships and small rudders. There's small sparks leading to big fires. There's water that's fresh and water that's salty. It's just, I mean, packed into these five chapters is picture after pictures to illustrate and bring to life the, the things he's trying to say to us. So it's, it's vivid in, in that way. You know, one, one of the things, when, I guess just one of the impressions that I have when I read the, this letter is this letter is written less like a chapter of a book and it's written more like a sermon. So it's more like a sermon. That, that, that's what this letter feels like when I read it. And as a preacher, preaching a sermon to, to a group of people, uh, you're going to find that James is tender and comforting. Uh, like James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. He's tender and comforting. But he's also direct. In James 4, 4, he looks at these people that he's writing to and says, you adulterous people. I mean, that, that's pretty direct, isn't it? I mean, that, that's kind of hard to get by with saying stuff like that. Uh, you know, James is one of those guys where he is, uh, he, he doesn't just step on toes. He kind of breaks your toes. He, he's that sort of got that di very direct sort of a style. Uh, James is also a, he's a very practical preacher. Um, one commentator said it this way. Uh, James has a name for being the preeminently practical man among the New Testament writers. 
What you find in, in James is a very practical, on-the-ground sort of a book. It's often called the Proverbs of the New Testament. It, it literally shows you what faith on the ground, not up in the clouds, not in theory up here, but what faith on the ground looks like. How to live a wise life in light of, of your faith. Uh, it, it's one of those books that uh, on Monday at 3, it applies to you. You know? Like, like you can read James, and on Monday at 3 o'clock, regardless of what you're going through, it's going to apply. On Tuesday, when, when poison is dripping from your lips in the form of slander against an, a fellow image bearer, James applies. On Wednesday, when suffering knocks on your door, James applies. On Thursday, when temptation dressed in its best knocks on your heart, uh, the, the book of James applies. On Friday, when your friend or, or maybe it's your parent or your child walks away from Jesus, just pursuing that well-worn path of the prodigal, the book of James applies. It, it is written to be on the ground in your life. James, this, this precious letter that meets us right there uh, on the ground in your everyday life. Monday at 3, right there is where the book of James meets you. This is one of the reasons it is such a beloved book. And we need moments like that, don't we? That to see how does this thing we talk about that's so big and, and oftentimes feels so theoretical, how do we make sure it lands down here on the ground of our life? We need moments like that. And James provides that. James is a beloved book. Here's the second reason for the book of James. James shows us that faith works. That, that is one of the primary things that James is trying to convince us of, that, that faith works. It's a letter of action. It's about moving and doing, acting and obeying. It's, it's putting skin on your faith. This is what the, the letter of James is about. So yes, let's just affirm a, a few big things. Yes, the, the faith alone saves. We all agree with that, right? It is faith alone in the person of Jesus that saves. But James is also going to, to, to remind us that the faith that saves is never alone. That the faith uh, that saves it never, it never stays alone. It, it has skin wrapped on it. It, it's, it's, it does things. It, James is reminding us that the call to follow Jesus is a call to follow, right? Like, like there, there's moving and doing and obeying. There, there's new ground to take. There's sin to fight. There's new joys to be had. James is reminding us of that. That, that yes, faith alone saves, but that faith does not stay alone. It, it, it does things. It, it works out in our life. Or you can think about it this way. Uh, we would all affirm and agree that when Jesus saves us, he makes us new creations, Right? Isn't that an amazing reality that, that Jesus so fundamentally changes a human being that he looks at them and says, you're actually a, a different thing now. You, you are a new creation. That's the amazing grace of God that's found in the gospel of Jesus. But now James comes and writes th this precious letter to show us what a new creation looks like. So, so it's one thing for the gospel to say, okay, now you are a new creation. James comes behind that and says, now, now let me show you what the life of that new creation, what it looks like in action. What does it look like to actually live as a new creation? That's the book of James. So think about the book of James. There are 108 verses in the book of James. 
And in those 108 verses, there are 59 commands. That's a lot of commands, isn't it? That is more commands per square inch than any other book of the Bible. James has a lot of do this and do that in it. He, he is showing that faith works, right? Yes, the faith that saves you, is, it's just faith. It's faith alone. But that faith doesn't stay alone. Now, th this reality, that, that your faith works, right? The faith that saves you doesn't stay alone. Uh, th that has also led to a lot of controversy around the book of James. Um, early on in the life of Martin Luther, he called James an epistle of straw. That's pretty sharp words for the book of the Bible, right? He did not like the book of James at all. And the reason he didn't like it is because he thought it was way too focused on what we do and just absolutely devoid of what Jesus has done for us. He, he thought it was all about our doing and none about what Jesus has done. He, he just could not see the gospel in the book of James early on in his life. Now, is that a fair critique of the book of James? Uh, the short answer is no, that's not a fair critique. Uh, and Luther eventually came around to see that, that that was not a fair uh, sort of take on the book of James. But at the same time, I think that is presenting to us a warning as we be begin to, to think about the book of James that I want us to heed. Anytime we come to a book like James, 59 commands and 108 verses, anytime we come to a book like this that's full of commands, we need to be very careful how we read this book so that we don't misread this book. We need to be very careful when you come to a book like that, just packed full of commands that, that we're reading it correctly. And, and I, here's the, the number one thing I want to communicate to you as you're thinking about these commands in the book of James. Under all the imperatives... Okay, so think about grammar class for a second. Under all the imperatives, imp imperatives are commands. It's the, it's the mood of the words, if you think back to your English class. It's the mood. Under all the imperatives, the commands, the, the do thises, the, the James looking at you and saying, yes, your faith needs to act. It needs to do things, right? Under every imperative, under all the imperatives are the indicatives. The indicatives are statements of fact. So, so under all the, the moments of do this, uh, under those imperatives are the indicatives, statements of facts about what Jesus has already done for you. So, so under all of our doing lies what Jesus has done. Now that is a massively important thing for you to see about the Bible as a whole. This is how the, the Bible as a whole sees our doing. Think even about the Ten Commandments. Before you get into the do this is of the Ten Commandments, Jesus or, or God clarifies to the people of Israel, I have freed you. I have redeemed you. This is what I have done. Now under your doing, the Ten Commandments lies that, what I have done. Think about the book of Ephesians for a moment. The book of Ephesians is six chapters long. And it's, uh, if you think about it in two halves, there's the first three chapters and the second three chapters to make all six chapters of Ephesians. The, the first three chapters are all indicatives, all statements of fact about what Jesus has done for you. There's only one command in the first three chapters, and that command is to remember Jesus and all that he has done for you. That's the only command. It's all statements of fact. It's all saying, this is what Jesus has done. Then you get to the second three chapters, chapters four through six, and then it turns to, now this is what you do. It's full of imperatives, the second three chapters. Now that is how the Bible sees the Christian life. 
under our doing exists the, 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 the doing of God. Done is down here. That's Jesus' work. And, and on that foundation, now we do. It's it always the imperatives up here and the, the indicatives down below it. Uh, maybe you could think of it this way. What Jesus has done is what fuels our doing. And if you get that wrong, you are going to shipwreck your life with Jesus. It's, it's what Jesus has done that fuels our doing. Now, you see this in the book of James. Under all 59 of these commands lies what Jesus has done. Under all of the do this lies, Jesus has already done that, right? Under all of those commands lies that. If, if you look at James 1.18, you see it really clearly. In James 1.18, here is what we find. James says, of his, that's talking about God, of God's own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Think about the first half of that verse. Of God's own will. It's, it's in God's initiative and, and desire. It's not something you did. It's not because you were better than your neighbor. This is all in the heart of God. Of God's own will, he brought us forth. That's a way of saying what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Our hearts were dead and God made them alive. They, had, they were a heart of stone, and God gave us a heart of flesh. He made us a new creation. God brought us forth of his own free will. And then it says this. How did he do that? By the word of truth. That is shorthand in the book of James for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So of his own will, God brought us forth. He made us alive. How did he do that? By the gospel of Jesus Christ, by the, by the person and work of Jesus. There's the indicative. James is saying, this is what Jesus has done. Then you get to the second half of verse 18. Now it's the imperative that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There's the imperative. James is saying, you're a new creation. That's what Jesus has done for you. So, so now show the world what it looks like to live a new life. He's saying, Jesus has freed you from sin's grip. So, so now, show the world what a free life looks like. Th that's the logic in the New Testament. Every, every author in the Bible is seeing that logic. Under all of our doing, there is what Jesus has done. And getting that order right is everything in your life. The, the indicatives fuel the imperatives. What Jesus has done drives our doing. Now, this is the reason that the ultimate goal of every sermon you ever hear preached at Stonegate, the simple goal, the ultimate goal, is to, to, to keep, even when there's a lot of, we need to do these things, that the ultimate goal is to turn our eyes back up to what Jesus has done for us. Because it's only when our hearts are gripped by that, seeing that, mesmerized by that, in awe of that, that we actually have the power and passion to do the things he's called us to do. So Stonegate, in, in light of this, I, I just want to affirm that I am so eager to sit under this letter with you. In a sense, James's sermon with you. Uh, to learn from James, just to allow James to pastor us. We're going to be in this letter for about the next four months together. Just kind of going line by line through J James's sermon, his, his words to us. I, mean, I am just so eager for the Lord to talk to us through James, th this pastor and preacher. Amen? Okay, so for the rest of our time, we are going to be in James chapter 1, verse 1. We're not going to make it far today. All of one verse. It's going to take us like actually four years to get through uh, this book of the Bible. 
James chapter 1, verse 1. Starts like this. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The first word, James. James. Now, we've got to answer the question, who, who is James? There is almost universal uh, sort of agreement in church history that the James referred to here is James, the half-brother of Jesus. That, that's who we're talking about. Now, did you know Jesus had brothers? I think it's good just to, to reacclimate us to the humanity of Jesus. Uh, we, we know that Jesus had at least four brothers and at least two sisters. He, he was a part of a family. He, he was fully human. And James is likely the oldest of Jesus' little brothers. So, so you've got Jesus, then you've got James. This is where James fits. Now imagine you're James for a moment. And uh, I, this has been so funny for me to think about. Uh, what do you think happened if, if you're James? Just picture you're, you're in the family, right? I mean, you're, you're growing up with Jesus. You're sharing a bathroom with Jesus, whatever the version of that was in the first century. All four of those brothers are probably sharing a bed with Jesus. You're eating dinner with I mean, you're just, he's just a part of your crew. I mean, he's, he's your older brother, right? And imagine that moment when Jesus comes to you, uh, the brothers, and he says, guys, I need to tell you something. Yes, I'm your brother. And yes, I'm God. Can you imagine how that would go? I mean, if you've got an older brother and they came and said that to you, what would you say back to them? Can, I mean, can you imagine that moment when Jesus clarifies, yeah, and I am God. That's, that's who you've been sleeping beside. That's who you've been eating. Dead. Yep, I'm him. I, I'm God. Well, the Bible tells us how James responded to Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus goes home. And uh, he started his ministry, he goes back to his hometown, and a big crowd shows up around Jesus. And when his family heard about it, they, they went, and, and the Bible tells us in, in Mark chapter 3, that they went out to find Jesus because they were going to seize him. Because the family was all saying, all, all of them, James included, they, they were all saying, Jesus is out of his mind. Now, if my brother came to me and said, hey, I'm your brother and I'm God, that's how I would be thinking. You have lost your mind. Yet what, are you, what, are you, what are you thinking right now? James literally thought his big brother had, had lost his mind. He, he was skeptical. He, he was not buying it, right? It, this whole thing, just like it would for you and I, felt crazy to James. Jesus, you're my brother. You're not God. That, that's, that's how James felt in, in this moment. Now, Welcome to, a, to the way many of us, e even in this room, feel about Jesus deep down. Skeptical. I, 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 you're trying to tell me that, that Jesus, human being Jesus, you're trying to tell me that man is God? You're trying to tell me that man in his life, death, and resurrection opened up the way to God? That you're, that's what you're trying to convince me of? N no, that, that's crazy. Deep down, that skepticism lives in this room, in our hearts. Jesus' family, J James, th they started there. Th they, they know that feeling. Th they definitely felt that skepticism. But it's amazing, that's not where they stayed. 
By the time you get to James chapter 1, James says this about Jesus. He uses three words to describe his big brother. He calls him Jesus. You see this in James 1. That, that is Jesus' name. That, that is asserting the humanity of Jesus. He was fully human. But, but then he says this about Jesus. Surrounding that word Jesus, his big brother's name, are two words. The first word is Lord. He is the Lord Jesus. Now, that word is shot through with meanings of deity. That is James saying, my big brother, he's actually God. He actually is. That's what James is saying with that word, Lord. He's saying that, yeah, Jesus, he's fully human, but he is fully God. And then he uses this word. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. That word Christ is, is, I mean, just riddled with all sorts of meaning in the Bible. It is the way of referring to the Messiah, to the long-awaited one, to the Savior who was going to come and save the people of Israel from their sins. So, so James is saying that this is Jesus. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world happened to James? How do you go from skeptical, he is out of his mind, to he is the Lord Jesus Christ? How does that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians 15 shows us what happens. Um, after Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus spent three days in the grave, but on the third day, the resurrected Jesus walked out of the tomb. And he began to show himself to people. 1 Corinthians 15 says that he appeared to over 500 people. And then 1 Corinthians 15 verse 7 says he appeared also to James, his little brother. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus. Like he died, three days later he's living again. That Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, showed up and appeared to James. And that encounter with the risen Jesus changed James forever. It it changed him forever. James went from skeptic, this guy's crazy. He has lost his mind. He he went from skeptic to follower of Jesus, to leader, pastor of the early church there in Jerusalem, to author of one of the most beloved books in the New Testament. So if you're a skeptic in the room, and, and this just feels crazy to you, Do you know what would be a wonderful prayer that you could just pray to God in the best way you know how right now this morning is, God, would you show me the resurrected Jesus this morning? More than you need to hear words from a person, more than you need anything, you just need God to show you his beloved and resurrected son, Jesus. That's what happened to James, and it changed him forever. This, This letter that we're reading is living proof that God loves to change people from skeptics to to lover of Jesus by his resurrected son. James, this is our man writing the letter, James. And and then he goes on to say this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings, greetings. Now, as you read the Bible, you're going to find that all sorts of metaphors are used to describe Christians. So, I mean, there's all kinds. We could do a whole set of sermons on the the metaphors used to describe Christians, the sort of identities that the gospel gives. So uh, there's things like the bride of Christ. That's how the Bible refers to Christians uh, as the sons and daughters of God. That's another way the Bible, uh, kind of another identity that the Bible bestows uh, upon Christians. And and those are identities, just to be clear. Those aren't activities. You don't go uh, do the bride of Christ. You are that. It's an identity, not an activity. This is, this is a gospel-bestowed identity that, that God gives his people. 
uh, the bride of Christ, uh, the sons and daughters of God. And I love how in James chapter 1, verse 1, James reminds us of two of those gospel-bestowed identities. Uh, two of those identities that, that exist for every son and daughter of God, for all of those who are in Christ. Uh, one of those identities is in the first half of James 1.1, 1, 1, and one is in the second half of James 1.1. 1, 1. So let me just roll through these with you. James 1.1, 1, 1, first half of the verse. James, a servant, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, th- there's our first identity. We, like James, are servants We're servants of God. And again, that's not something James does, right? It's something James is. That is an identity statement. James, a servant of God. We are servants. It's not something we do. It's it's something we are. Before James starts to address our activities, do this and do that, he's reminding you, no, no, this is who you are as a follower of Jesus. You are a servant of God. That word can also be translated as slave, probably more accurately as the word slave. And that word slave is just offensive now as it was back then, right? The the audience that James is writing into lives in a Roman world where slaves were common. And and James's his opening thought, the, the way he sets the tone for the entirety of the letter, the first thing he wants you to know and see is this. James is saying, this is the grid through which I see my life. This is how I think of me. This this is the identity that God has bestowed upon me, servant. Servant, I I, I no longer own myself. I I, I no longer have the final rights, the final say in my life. No, no, I've I've relinquished all of those things. I've I've been bought by God through the death of his beloved son, Jesus. I am his. I now gladly submit to my my joy-giving king saying, I I am a servant. He's my Lord. He's my master. I'm his slave. I'm his servant. Now, that just makes us pause, doesn't it? Is that the way you view your life? Is that the way you view it? I mean, imagine you were writing this letter, and you're introducing yourself. So, first line, Rodney, and then you're going to fill in the blank with how you want people to see you. What's going what's to fill in that blank? And what f- is going to fill in that blank is going to show you what you're deriving some of your deepest sense of identity from. What, what's going to fill that blank? I mean, think about what could have filled uh, James's blank. James could have said, James, the half-brother of Jesus. G- give me some respect around here, right? I mean, he could have said that. He could have said, hey, I am James. Paul called me the pillar of the church. He is one of the pillars, right? He, he could have said, I am the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Bow down, man. I mean, he, but that's not what he does, is it? James, in just this humble moment, says, no, this is how I want to be known. This is who I am. I am James, a servant of Jesus. What does it mean to be a servant of Jesus? It means that we have renounced the ownership of our life, and we have relinquished it to Jesus. We've renounced it, let, let go of it, and we have said, Jesus, you take the ownership. We, we are yours. Now, do you remember the last time you bought a car? It's a terrible experience, isn't it? God, just, I don't like anything about it. But, but there is a, this amazing moment when you're buying a car, 
And uh, there's the moment where you give them the money, and in response to you giving them the money, uh, they, they, they give you the title. That they, they transfer the title to you. You give me this, I, I'll give you the title. I, I'm going to sign it over, and I'm going to write your name in the title. Now, now, what is that saying in that moment? That is saying to them, the car is no longer mine. The car is now yours. You are the rightful owner of the car. In the same way, every one of our lives has a title assigned to it. Your life does, my life does. Someone owns it. And James, one of his first questions he wants us to think about is, who owns the title? Like, in whose name is the title of your life transferred to or or, or given to? Whose name is on your title? That's the first question he wants us to consider. And and here's, you know, here's what makes all of this so hard. Uh, When we come out of the womb, we come out demanding ownership. But we come out gripping the title and letting the world know you will not touch the title, right? Uh, This is why any parent, if you're a parent of siblings, uh, you know your kids are always trying to boss the other kids around, right? Right? I mean, they're always giving orders to someone to do something for them, right? We just come out of the womb thinking like this. I'm the owner of everything. Now, you guys all are my servants, So y'all get about doing the things that I want you to do, right? This is how we come out of the womb. And uh, if you've got, you know, a group of siblings in the house and you're watching those interactions play out, it's it's not uncommon for us to hear a phrase like this, a, a little brother looking up to a bossy big sister and that little brother saying, you are not the boss of me. I mean, virtually every parent has heard that, right? You are not the boss of me. We are all born believing that phrase. We come out of the womb horizontally looking at people, making sure people know you are not the boss of me. But even worse, we we come out vertically looking up at God, clarifying to God and God, we want to make sure you know you are not the boss of me. This is how we come out of the womb. We come out of the womb owning the title, wanting the title, clarifying that no one else is going to get the title. We come out of the womb gripping that title like Gollum's precious, don't we? I mean, you're not getting it from me. This is life or death. That's how we come out of the womb. And so James's first question to us is, have you transferred the title? Is it transferred? Is it still in your name? Or have you renounced the title of your life and relinquished it to Jesus? Uh, Jim Elliott was a missionary, and he and five other men were speared to death, trying to get the gospel to an unreached part of the world. And as news traveled back to his wife, they came to Elizabeth Elliott, and they told her, uh, Elizabeth, your husband Jim died today. And she looked back at them and said, no, he didn't. And they said, Elizabeth, your husband died today. And she looked back in and said, no, he didn't. He didn't die today. And they said, Elizabeth, I, I don't know how to be any more plain and clear. Your husband died today. And she said, no, he didn't. He died when he was 16 years old, knelt down beside his bed and said, God, waste my life on you. That's transferring the title. That's becoming a servant of Jesus. 
that, that's, what, that, that's what a servant looks like and smells like. That, that's a person who has, in a lot of ways, just owned what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6. You are not your own, but you were bought with a price. Paul owning that looked like this for Paul. Galatians 2.20, I, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It, it's, he's got the title. I have renounced the title and given it to him. This is why Paul in Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, brothers, to, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. To sign over the title. Present your body as a living sacrifice. You know the problem about a living sacrifice? Because it's living, it constantly wants to take back the title. That's the problem with the living sacrifice, right? So this is why Paul says to present your body in the present tense. In the present tense in the Greek, it's an ongoing action. It's like today you present your body as a living sacrifice, then you wake up on Monday and you represent your body as a living sacrifice, and then on Tuesday you re-sign over the title again, then you do it again on, on Thursday and Friday and Saturday and every moment and every day of your life, you're just always re-signing over the title because it's a living sacrifice and we all have a way of wanting to take the title back. So Paul says, Present your bodies every day, all day, every moment as a living sacrifice. That, that identity of a servant, it's one of the most practical and important things about your life. Uh, if you have kids, you should make sure you get the New City Catechism. You can download it on your phone uh, if you want. You can grab it at the resource area. You need to make sure you get the New City Catechism. Here is question one of the New City Catechism. It's just a simple question to answer to teach good theology. Question one of the New City Catechism. What is our only hope in life and death? Answer, that we are not our own but belong to God. D do you know what your only hope is in life and death? That you're a servant of God? That you've relinquished the title of your life and you've given it to God? I'm not my own, but I, I belong to God. Is this how you see your life? Are you a servant of God? Have you, have you transferred the title? Is this how you see yourself as a slave of Jesus? I have no rights left. I'm not constantly fighting for my rights with people. Fighting for my rights with, no, I've relinquished the rights to my life. I've signed them over, and now I'm a servant of God. Is that how you see your life? We're servants. But James also has something else to say about our identity, and quickly we'll end with this. He also says we're not just servants, we're, we're also exiles. Look at the second half of James chapter 1, verse 1. It says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Now, let me give you just the brief context there. Uh, James was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. So he's one of the main kind of lead pastors there in Jerusalem. It was made of mostly Jewish Christians. And if you read Acts chapter 8, what you're going to find is persecution breaks out in Jerusalem. And when persecution broke out, it scattered the church that James was pastoring. So now you have got all of these people that made up that church in Jerusalem scattering across the known world as refugees. Think about Syria over the last uh, few years. Persecution breaks out. You just take kind of what you can grab, you know, in a bag, and, and you wake up in a new place with new people having to figure out a new culture, maybe even a new language. You're looking for a new job to be able to support your life and your family. I mean, it's just, is that, 
that, that is such a difficult reality, isn't it? Such a hard moment. So these Christians that James are, James are writing to, they're, they're, they're scattered, they're, they're mostly poor, they're enduring all kinds of suffering. And James addresses these scattered Christians as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now that's got all sorts of Old Testament uh, sort of... Uh, overtones to it. Uh, think back to the Old Testament people of God. Uh, God gave them the promised land, but because of their disobedience, God kicks them out of the place, the country, that the home that he had given them. And, and the, the, the foreign armies that came and, and conquered them took them back to their places, right? And, and those Old Testament people of God that were dispersed, displaced, they were referred to as the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Now think about what that's, what that's saying. It's a way of reminding the people of God of their identity. It's a way of reminding the displaced people of God, the people who are not home. It's a way of reminding them that, yes, you are living at a, as a citizen of a foreign country, of another people. But, but that country is not your home. That is not where your ultimate and, and sort of deepest citizenship is. It's not there. Your deepest citizenship is, is back here. Now, in, in this title, writing to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, James is doing something very similar for us. We, as Gentile Christians, are part of that greeting. We fit in now to those 12 tribes of the dispersion. We're part of the people of God scattered across the face of the earth, and James is reminding us, although most of us right now find ourselves as citizens of the United States of America, James is reminding us our home, our ultimate citizenship is in another place. It's not here. It's in a future land. It's, it's in heaven. As Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, our citizenship is in heaven. And from there, we are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our real, most lasting, most enduring citizenship is. He's reminding us that this is not our home, that we are pilgrims here. We are exiles here. That's who we are. We, we are exiles. That's a gospel-bestowed identity upon the people of God. Exiles. Now, think about the three ways you can live in a host country, right? You're a Syrian refugee. You show up in country X, and you're going to live there. Here are the three ways you can live there. One is as an immigrant. Think about what an immigrant is. An immigrant, they seek full citizenship in the new country. They plant their roots deeply there over time. So deeply that over time they blend in. They, they assimilate into the host country in a way where they lose their language, they lose their culture, they lose their customs, they, they lose all of their distinctiveness. That, that's an immigrant. That's one way to relate to a host country. Another way you can relate to a host country is as a tourist. I think about how a tourist relates. When you're a tourist in a host country, you aren't seeking to assimilate right? You, you aren't out for the good of that country. You aren't trying to build um, good things in the community that you're in. You, you're, just, you're just kind of there. You're just seeing the country from the outside, but you've got no real investment into it, right? The, the immigrant is all in on the host country. The tourist is all out of the host country. Those are two ways to relate, but then there's a third way to relate to a host country, and that's as an exile, as an exile, you're recognizing that there's a sense in which God has called you to be both the best of the tourist and the best of the immigrant, the, the best of both. 
So the best of the immigrant is we're, we're actually working for the good of our area. We're actually doing that. We're actually working for the welfare. It's Jeremiah 29. We're working for the good of our host country. We want it to be the best sort of place of human flourishing. We want more of the kingdom of God to break into the host country that we're in. Uh, but at the same time, it's the best of the tourists. We're reminding ourselves of Romans 12. We're, we're in the world, but not of the world. We're, we're, we're here, but we're not going to be conformed to the patterns and customs of the world. We're not going to lose our, our distinctiveness as a follower of Jesus in this host country. That's the identity of exile. That identity of exile reminds us as, as we live in, in this host country, as we're working for the good of this host country, that, that we must labor to keep our hearts alive to our future home. We must keep our hearts alive to our future citizenship. We must keep our hearts yearning and bent to war and eagerly anticipating the incredibly bright future that God is preparing for us. Yeah, exile reminds us of that. And this isn't like a random introduction to the letter. This is introducing the things that James is concerned about in the letter. He is concerned that his people, that these precious people that he is pastoring, are going to lose their exile identity and become an immigrant. This is why he says in James 1.27, here's what pure religion looks like. Yeah, it's widows and orphans, but yes, it's keeping oneself unstained from the world. This is why he reminds them, don't be the adulterous people. Don't do that. Friendship with the world is enmity toward God. So, so keep that exile status. And don't we all need that reminder? Don't you need that reminder? Do you remember the parable of the soils? It's that parable that Jesus gives where he talks about there's a man sowing seeds. And the, the man is sowing gospel seeds and it's landing in various types of hearts represented by those soils. And do you remember the third soil? The, the sower is scattering gospel seeds, and it lands in the third soil. And that represents those hearts, that, that group of people that the, the, the gospel seed lands in it, and it instantly sprouts up, and it's doing great. It looks amazing. Uh, but then Jesus says, but, but here's what happens. Thorns begin to grow up around that seed. And, and then he identifies the, those thorns. He calls them the, the cares of this world the deceitfulness of riches, and the desire for other things. And he says th those thorns, just, just sort of worldliness, not keeping ourselves unstained from the world, he says that those thorns have a way of growing up with that gospel seed and eventually choking it out, suffocating the, the work of the gospel in your heart suffocating, choking out a love for Jesus, S just totally suffocating any sense of this is not our home. Our home is in front of us. Our home is in the future. And I just wonder if that's happening to you. If you're just being seduced by the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the, the desires for other things, are you being seduced by that? You know, th those, those thorns are native in our hearts. In other words, if you're not constantly weeding the garden of your heart for those thorns, they're going to naturally grow up in your heart and choke out a love of Jesus. Choke out an expectation and an eagerness for our future home. Do you remember Demas in the Bible? 
Paul talks about his old friend Demas in 2 Timothy. And, and Paul laments that Demas has deserted him. Do you know why Demas deserted Paul? Because he fell in love with this present world. He fell in love with it. He was seduced by it. Just over time, just believing this world is all there is. And it wasn't always that way with Demas. I mean, there was a moment when Demas had this rich love of Jesus, this eager expectation for his future home, where he had the, the, the sort of dirt of ministry under his fingernails. You could just see Jesus on him, and then all of a sudden, just day upon day, week upon week, year upon year, a slow seduction of the world leaked into Demas' heart, and eventually he deserted Paul. Just in love with this present world. Now, I just wonder... How many of us that describes this morning? In O Church, may Demas' story not be ours, amen? May it not be ours. May we stay wide awake to Jesus. May we keep our hearts wide awake and yearning for our forever home. Will you pray with me? I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be most helpful and to wipe away the things that would not be helpful for you today. <clears throat> Paul, or James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. A servant. Have you signed the title of your life over to God? Where are you trying to take that title back right now? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. To his people, to his exiles, Is there an eager yearning and anticipation for the incredibly bright future that God has in front of you? Have you been seduced by this world? So God, would you protect us this morning? God, would you show us these things this morning? God, would you deepen that identity in us of servant and exile? Oh, God, would you do that? Would you do that? And it's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.